0: Hello again, Trippers. Alex Zane here, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for another glorious episode of A Trip to the Movies. Thanks for joining me today. I'm currently back in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London. And in a moment, my guest this week, Mr Nikolai Arcel takes us all on his perfect trip to the movies. Thanks for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon, because if you're going to watch a movie, it has to be at an Odeon Luxe. For me, there is no better place to experience the mesmerising magic of the big screen. And when I say big, I mean crystal clear, four times sharper, larger than life, I sense big. A place where you can recline in luxury whilst sipping on your favourite tipple as you immerse yourself in the all-consuming power of the story, enriched by epic Dolby Atmos that'll make your spine tingle and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Now that is how to experience a movie and there is no better feeling. You can book your Odeon Luxe experience at odeon.co.uk or via the My Odeon app. Odeon say we make movies better and they are not wrong. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in Glorious Technicolor, do head over to our YouTube channel where the video goes up a few days after the pod, and for all the latest updates or to get in touch with us, you'll find us at Trip2Movies Pod on all social media. Alright then, Trippers, if you're ready, let's do this. Hello and welcome to the show where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect trip to the movies. This week we're joined by a brilliant filmmaker. He wrote the screenplay for the original Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and wrote and directed the Oscar-nominated A Royal Affair starring Mass Mickelson. His latest movie, The Promised Land, reteams him with that film's leading man for an epic period drama set in 18th century Denmark, following the story of a stoic captain and his attempts to create a settlement on the unforgiving Danish heath while crossing paths with a barbaric landowner. Here to tell us about that film and take us on his perfect trip to the movies, it's the excellent Nikolai Arsall. Nikolai, thank you for joining me on a trip to the movies. How are you today?
1: I'm good, thank you. Well, thank you so much.
0: Well, it is wonderful to see you. Wonderful to be able to talk about the the promised land. I guess I should start with congratulations. How are you feeling seeing the reception it's been getting online? People talking about the movie. What's what's that mean to you?
1: It means uh, it means a lot, you know. Actually, I I've always considered myself uh, not somebody who is directing movies just to be seen by a couple of sort of. Uh, very uh, brainy friends. I've always wanted to make films that sort of marry a kind of artistic vision, but with a a commercial appeal, because I I spent two or three years making each movie, and I spent two or three years just figuring out what to do next. So that's six years between every movie. And so, yeah, I'm happy that people uh, like it and seem to like it, and are going to uh, see it
0: uh, yeah, well, allow, allow me to say that's an understatement. I think people are loving this movie. It's an incredible film. Let me take you back to the start of your journey with The Promised Land, though. And when you first read the novel it's based on, The, the Captain and Anne-Barbara, what was your initial reaction to, to reading that? Did you immediately know this was going to be a film you made?
1: I didn't immediately know. I, you know, whenever you start reading a book and you, you feel yourself getting attracted to the story, as a director, you always hope that the book has a great ending, because that always is something that you know. You usually, when you get to the ending, it's like, oh, nothing happened, or there's no conclusion, you know. But this has had a really great ending. So when I when I made it to the ending of the book, I knew there was a film, but I also knew one other thing, and that was that I would never want to make it without Matt Mickelson. So I had to call him up right away and ask him even before we wrote the script whether he would be interested in doing this kind of story. And thankfully he said, I'd love to if you write a good script. <laughs> so so that was sort of... And I didn't want to do it without him.
0: Okay, so in that phone call, uh, do you tell him, do you tell Mass Mickelson at that point that if he says, no, this film isn't going to happen, do you tell him it doesn't exist without him?
1: That's usually something you you should not do with actors because they'll get a, a little bit annoyed, like, oh, really? But... In Mass's case, we were friends because we hadn't made one other film together and we had a lot of fun and we'd remain, I wouldn't say close, but we remained friends and, you know, uh, so it was, I could tell it to him with a little bit of a, uh, a irony in my voice, but but he understood. He, he knew that I probably wouldn't do it without him. Uh, it's probably not a good way to phrase it though. I, uh, if I... To, to sort of get him to board, I should probably have said, this is a great film and I can get every actor in the world and uh, maybe I'll call you back. <laughs> but uh, he, knows, he, he knows how much he's worth, you know, uh, as a talent and as an actor and, and, and you know, as a, so he knew. But he really loved the idea for the story and he sort of became a little bit of a partner in the script phase.
0: He is, uh, he is I, I think, well, I'm, I'm going to say, but I think you've said it already. He is genuinely one of the, the greatest actors of, uh, of this generation. I, I, know, I know you feel the same. I mean, uh, that, that, that face and that, that the way he says so much without saying anything at all, he's, he's incredible. Um, obviously, you said you worked with him on The Royal Affair. Obviously, you wrote uh, Riders for Justice, which he appeared in. Um, what was it about him that made him perfect for Captain Ludwig Kalen.
1: He Ludwig is a he's a man who is uh, who is very internalizing all his emotions. He barely is able to feel anything because his entire life has been about his ambitions and his drive. So he has no family, he has nobody who no one who he cares for. And but you still have to feel something for him. You still have to he's not a very nice guy, by the way. In the first half of the movie, you you barely like the man. And so Mass is able to express these sort of conflicting emotions uh, with very little, like you said. is He has a way, because he's really feeling it, so you can see in his eyes what's going on. So even when he's saying something that you don't necessarily agree with or when he's closed off and internalized, you can still see that there's a, a somebody who has a heart in, in there, if you really dig deep, is somebody who's conflicted, and that's what mess is so great at.
0: Um, At this stage, it might be worth me just uh, giving a very brief overview of the film that we're talking about. The Promised Land sees um, Captain Ludwig Kalen, played by Mass Mikkelsen. He heads to the Danish heath in the 18th century in an attempt to build a settlement on what is considered unfarmable land. Now, I I grant you that that as a description of, of the film doesn't even begin to do just how... Brutal and exciting, um, a man trying to farm potatoes actually is because he is, he is, he's got a wonderful antagonist, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. But first of all, I love a movie that teaches me. Something, And I had no idea of this part of Danish history. I had no idea about the Danish heath, this, this land that was made unfarmable because of Stone Age settlers. How exciting is it for you to not only be making an entertaining film, but also a film that is educating the audience in some way?
1: I think it is exciting, but my first aim is never to educate. I, 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 think, my, I think education, fascination is another word for education. Do you know what I mean? I'm mm. fascinated with that part of history. And if I can make people fascinated, then then my job is done. It's not so much about lifting a finger and saying, okay, let's go to class, people, and hear what happened. It's more about, I just find it so fascinating that there was almost like this uh, pioneer Western, like almost, um, almost US frontier-like uh, part of Denmark. It was a one-third of the entire Denmark it was just heat. There was nothing there. Mm-hmm. Dangerous, you know, there were nomads and bandits and wolves and... So I I just thought it was such an exciting part of uh, Danish history, but quite unknown. Ludwig Ludwig Kalen, who was the first one who managed to grow something out there, complete unknown until the film came out and the book came out. Nobody knew about this guy, as opposed to the last film I did, Royal Affair, where everybody knew these characters, right? So this was a completely unknown chapter of Danish history.
0: I mean you 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 you're right I I I hadn't put that uh, together but it is it does feel like a homestead somewhere in the old west and especially in the brutality of this period and the uh the way life can just be snuffed out um like in the blink of an eye I mean you say well, we don't really get to know uh, Ludwig at the start, and sure enough, like the first kill is dealt with. Uh, a, it's performed by our protagonist, and B, it's dealt with most in the way it's shot, even in the most matter of fact way possible. Which I, I guess is a real entry point for the audience to, is for you to let them know exactly what this
1: time is like. Right, exactly. This is this is such a dangerous time that if you're attacked by somebody, you know, you just shoot him in the head and you move on. Right. That's just. <laughs> It's very, And it was a very long discussion because people were actually a little worried, like, are you really going to shoot it in this wide shot? And, you know, like you said, matter of fact. But I I felt it was important to show that not only what kind of time it was, but only what kind of man Ludwig is. He's been in the army for 25 years. He has no qualms whatsoever about killing somebody who's trying to rob him or kill him. You know, it's very Mm -hmm. easy for him.
0: Um, So the, the antagonist. Uh, Wow. Wow, Uh, Frederick de Schinkel, Um, what a brilliant, brilliant antagonist he is. Uh, So I'm going to make this clear: Uh, I know he is evil personified, and yet his speech about life being chaos, I kind of get. I'm kind of with him to a certain degree. Which, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not. I don't like the guy, but it's fascinating to have someone who is that evil who you still go but he does have a point.
1: Right, exactly. That, that was such a beautiful thing. When me and Adas Thomas Jensen, we wrote the script, we always had so much fun with having an antagonist that that was probably a little smarter than the main character, you know? Mm-hmm. He's a little bit more modern in his way of thinking about life because honestly, if, the, if you think about the two ways of uh, approaching life, there's either Ludwig's, which is I can control life, or there's the Schinkel's, Life is chaos. You cannot control everything, anything, right? Mm. And I definitely, I subscribe to the Jingles, uh sort of I- idea about life, which is also, we took it a little bit from what is it? Is it John Lennon who said, like, life, where God is making plants, you know, God is laughing as we make plants. I think it's an even older saying, but I think that that was just a beautiful thing that the antagonist was probably a little bit more on point than the main character. And so, yeah, we get him. But of course, he's using his intellect in the wrongest possible manner right so that's mm. yeah and his power
0: yeah yeah i mean um what does it what does it feel like as a filmmaker because there's the the scene that i think is probably going to be talked about a lot his chosen method of torture slash murder is uh boiling water and i'm right in thinking i'm right in thinking that that's real you found found that out that's 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 insane
1: it's insane and De Schinkel is based on a real... He's based on a real character. Uh, there was a Frederick De Schinkel, you know. There also was a Ludwig Kaelin. Uh, De Schinkel was known to be extraordinarily brutal and to uh, torture and kill his peasants when they displeased him. And the boiling water was, was more often used for punishment, you know, which was mm. sort of like, oh, here you go, here's some boiling water and you can have... You can be in pain for two weeks, but he... Would use it a little more excessively than that, and I think the, I think that's a scene that people talk about a lot. What is very interesting, I, this is a little bit of a spoiler, but you don't actually see any boiling water hitting any people, right? It's mm-hmm. just the sensing it or hearing it and knowing that it's happening that's so horrifying, and um, and that was also an interesting thing. I mean, yeah, he he does have, he does have a lot of cruelty in him.
0: Yeah. Uh, When you discover a fact like that, and granted it's obviously absolutely horrifying, is there a small amount of excitement as a filmmaker to go, wow, well that's real, I can put that in the film, I'm not making this up. If If people go, God, was that necessary? You go,
1: well, it's true. I, I would say excitement, I, I would say in this, in this film, I, I, I've sort of been a little bit of a soft touch director uh, for my entire career in terms of the violence and the brutality, right? Royal Affair was very polished. Everybody was very, you know, it was all wigs and kisses and romance. And the other films I've done are also quite sort of like, I, I, would, I would always steer away from the violence. And this time I felt that when I'm reading the book is quite brutal. And when I read the book, and I felt that in order to accurately portray these times and how tough it was, and to portray how crazy this guy is, I kind of knew that I had to, uh, I had to confront my own sort of. I have a little bit of. I don't really like movie violence a lot. You know, I'm not a big fan of you know slashers and stuff like that. Mm. But so I had to kind of go. Okay, I need to. I need to over. I need to go over some of my own boundaries in terms of the movie violence because this is a film that has to have some of that brutality. So I wouldn't say sort of joyful excitement, but I would say I was pleased that these scenes were based on something real, so that it wasn't like, oh, here's a here's an insane writer director who just came up with these horrifying things. You know, uh, at least it's the stuff that really happened. Um,
0: it's a wonderful film. Uh, congratulations on The Promised Land. Uh, can I ask very quickly uh, what was the thinking behind changing the name because I believe the original Danish title is is it The Bastard uh, and we've changed it to The Promised Land. What was the what was the thinking behind that?
1: I I wasn't I wasn't a fan of the uh change. I wanted it to be called The Bastard uh across the world. I thought that was an apt title, you know. He is a bastard, he's an illegitimate son of a uh, Nobleman who's who's trying to fight his way into nobility, but unfortunately, you know, some of the buyers felt that the bastard, because in Danish, the bastard only means illegitimate son, and in of course ah. in English, it means other things, right? Yeah. So they were afraid that people would would miss sort of understand and think that this is about a, a really bad guy, or you know, and and they just felt they wanted to change it. And I thought the okay. Promised Land was okay, you know, because I think it's still has a significance still. You can see how it fits together with uh, Ludwig's sort of dreams, right?
0: Good, good. Well, The Promised Land, as it is called here in the UK, is a fantastic film. I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, Nikolai, you have kindly said you'll take us on your perfect trip to the cinema so we are your audience you are our guide let's leave this dimension and enter a new dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits Nikolai let's go on your trip to the movies so we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer there's an excited buzz as there always is in a cinema foyer the hum of anticipation it's your perfect trip Nikolai who have you picked living or dead to go with you
1: I thought, you know, it was either uh, it was either Paul Thomas Anderson or Quentin Tarantino, who, and Paul Thomas because they also app for this movie. that I mean, I thought Quentin Tarantino is probably somebody who could have the most interesting, fun movie facts for you when you go in to see any movie, right? So I thought that would be that would be fun.
0: Yeah, and I imagine he'd be very keen to tell you. He doesn't strike me as a man who holds back from letting you know what he knows. He loves knowledge. He loves trivia.
1: He would probably be talking throughout the whole experience of watching the movie. I, I suppose.
0: Uh, obviously his, uh, his next movie, the movie critic, I believe it's going to be called is his 10th and last movie. What do you, what do you as a filmmaker make of that? A filmmaker like him saying, that's it. I'm out at 10 films.
1: I don't believe that for a second. I think it's a I I think it's something that he tells himself. And then five years from now, he'll be like, Oh, you know what? I want to make one more film. I don't think he's ever going to stop.
0: No, I think. I- do you? I know I think you're right. I that that would be my answer to that question as well. I truly think he's he, he, he's he just can't. There's no way. He's too he's he he's, well, he
1: just loves film too much. Right. Why would he stop? I I, I mean I I get his thing about the legacy and he's made some really brilliant films. But you know, there's also just having fun, you know, doing what you're passionate about. And I feel it I, Uh, My feeling is that a little bit like, do you remember Tina Turner who kept doing these like last, my last tours? She did that for 15 years. I think it'll be a little bit like that. Let's see.
0: Yeah. And also, I mean, it's not like the quality has dropped off. If he'd started making bad films, fine. But, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is great.
1: It's great. It's amazing. It's one of my favorite ones. I mean, I know that's not everybody's favorite, but I really loved it.
0: Uh, we, we can talk about that. It's one of my favorites, and a lot of people say, yeah, but what about Pulp Fiction? I'm like, honestly, I prefer Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I think it's a masterpiece. But I think but they, I think it's a very specific type of people who... Like, I have some of my friends who are not really into movies the same way that I am. I'm not really happy mm. with that film, but but all my filmmaker friends love it, you know, so it's a little different, and pe- people have to... You have to know a little bit, and, and, and if you don't know, you know, the... You know, you don't know so much about the Manson murders. You're not you're not really getting the whole picture. You know, you have to know a little bit to understand what he was thinking, you know, for the whole third act, for instance.
0: Yeah. No, that is true. That is true. Maybe that's why we love it, because we love film. All right, you're going with Quentin Tarantino. Now there is a clock on the wall in the foyer, reads a specific time. Nikolai, what time of day have we gone to the cinema?
1: Always, this always the evening, the seven, six to seven p.m.
0: So that's classically, famously, that's a busy screening. That's a full auditorium. You like? Do you like
1: that? That's what I like. I like to watch movies. I I, I don't want to go into a, an empty, you know, theater. I'd like to watch when I go to the theaters, and it's not that often now that I have little children, because so, <laughs> they don't they they take up a lot of my time. But when I do, I really enjoy that sort of collective experience. I think that's why. You go to the theater, that's why it should never die, hopefully, you know.
0: Yeah, hopefully. Touch wood. I'm touching wood right now. So let me ask you the first time you watched The Promised Land, your film, with an audience who weren't involved in the film in any way. Let's call them a cold audience. Tell me when and where that was and, and where your head is at. How are you feeling as the title comes up on screen?
1: That was that was the Venice Film Festival. It was a 1,000-plus person theater and it was huge and it was a big deal for me i had been to berlin but i'd never been to venice and this was the first time a danish film had been invited to official competition in venice in over 30 years so i was very nervous and it was the first time i watched it with a with an actual audience so i i was completely prepared to uh, to be booed out of the cinema and completely fail and run away uh, but, um, and, and, you know, I can never watch my own movies with any kind of pleasure. I always sit in every little moment, you know, kind of, uh, why did I do that? You know, I, I it's very hard for a director, you know, to watch your own stuff because you've been watching the same scenes over and over again for months and months. Right. But it really was a pleasure. It was a great screening. People were laughing and, you know, gasping and, and at the end there was like an I don't know, six, eight-minute applause. It was just a beautiful experience. I don't think it can be matched. That first one, that first uh, amazing, you know, you do have that one screening, and then later it gets more, you get more used to it, or you sort of, oh, here comes the laugh, or here comes the gas. But the first time is magical.
0: Right, well, we're going at seven-ish in the evening then. So you booked the tickets, Nicolai. Where in
1: the auditorium are we going to be sitting? I would I would be sitting in row six or seven in the middle. I want to sit close to the screen and be sort of. I want the sound to be loud. I want the screen to be close. So yeah, depending on the size of the screen, right? I would probably choose row seven.
0: Okay, because you don't want to be too close, right? You call it it's too much. Too much. I want to be
1: no. Close. I don't want to be row three <laughs> or two, but seven is perfect. You know, I have a, I have a theater that I always go to called the Imperial in Copenhagen and that's always row 7 it's always the same two seats for me it's been since i was 20 you know
0: 30 is going to the same same cinema in Copenhagen
1: same cinema whenever a big movie comes out same cinema same seats that's interesting because
0: that means that like that variable the seat the cinema that's constant so you can watch a film and it is purely down to the quality of the film as opposed to the experience in the cinema
1: completely although you do change with age, you do change a little bit. I find myself sort of now going, "Oh, it's a little loud," you know, because I'm a little older now,
0: <laughs>
1: and that's that's a bummer because I'm like I always loved that you know big booming sound, but now now I'm a little more more frail. I'm like, "Oh, it's a little like, can you turn it down?" You know, I don't know. I, I hope <laughs> I hope when I get a little more deaf I won't care as much. But that that's what's happening. And next, the eyesight goes, I suppose, right? So.
0: Yeah, that well then then you're on road two or three.
1: Right, exactly.
0: Right, then the final thing we need before we leave the foyer is the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat?
1: I'm a candy guy. I'm not so much a popcorn guy. I would always choose something like chocolatey or an ice maybe even, you know, yeah, ice cream. That would be before I would I would choose something chocolate or gummy bears and i I'm a real candy guy.
0: Okay, sweet a sweet tooth. there. nothing savory at all. You don't want you don't want pizza, nachos, none of
1: this. No, 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 nothing, nothing like. And by the way, Danish cinemas don't even have that. We don't have any of that. We just have popcorn, candy, and drinks. That's all.
0: That's the classic. You guys have pizzas in cinemas now. We have everything, anything
1: you can <laughs> but, imagine. But that would that would that would make the smells inside the theater a little bit crazy. I
0: mean, it's it's really there's it's it's a dividing line. Some people they love it; they love the idea of having a waiter uh, being able to come to your seat and deliver you food to your seat. And other people are like, no, you get it in the foyer, and then you're not disturbed in the cinema. I,
1: I would take, I would take, you know, a nice sushi meal. You know, if they was available, that would be nice, probably.
0: Okay, okay, I me mean, that that's a that's a sharp right uh, you've just done there. It's yeah. like I just want sweets and drink. Although yeah, sushi, yeah, it, if that's available. Yeah,
1: I was thinking, yeah, I was just thinking about it. If it was a real table, you know, and I, yeah, it would be nice.
0: Uh, well, this is your perfect cinema trip. So for the first time ever, Nicola, I'm going to give you sushi and candy. Thanks. Uh, that's, that's what you're taking in. Perfect. Right, let's leave the foyer. We push open the doors to the corridor down towards the auditorium. Now the corridor's looking a little bare at the moment, so I'm gonna put up posters that represent some of your most important movie memories. And the first poster I'm gonna put up depicts your fondest movie memory.
1: You know, my fondest movie memory is definitely watching E. T. The reason why E.T. is so important to me is because it's the film that got me into making films. I, I had been I obviously I'd watch other films by then. I was maybe I don't know 9, 10, 11. But when I watched ET I was I was for the first time I was so taken with that story that I just wanted to learn. I just wanted to enter that world somehow. I wanted to be Elliot. I wanted to meet ET. I wanted and then my father was smart enough to give me these books about the making of ET. and that's the first time I understood, okay, they're, they're making these. they're not just happening on the screen somebody's making this little this doll and they're making it move and this that guy's an actor and this drew barrymore is an actress and you know and i was completely fascinated with the whole concept i i, I read that book from from uh, to start to end and i started even and the first thing i said i think it was like half a year after ETS, watching E.T., i said to my father can you buy me a film camera so when i was 10 or 11 i got a to great camera And I've never looked back. I I was just making movies since then. So that was a very, very important movie for me.
0: Was there something about E.T. that when you watched it, it felt
1: different to the previous films you'd watched at that point? I think so. But I think if you ask anybody who's 50 now, that age watching E.T. when you're 10, when you're Elliot's age, when you're the protagonist's age, that's perfect age. Like every little boy at eight or nine feels a little bit lonely. Probably something absent father. You know, there's all these things, and then you just then you just have this like space alien that you have in your home, and you can and you it's try to save it and make you know that that whole story is just like every kid's dream come true. Mm. So I think that 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 was just the perfect film at that age. I think if I had watched it at 20, it probably wouldn't be as impactful, right? But I was the perfect age for that film.
0: Right. Well, that's a great first poster to put we're putting up the poster for E. T. Okay, we continue down the corridor and the second poster depicts your
1: worst movie memory. Yeah, but that has to be I really thought about this. That that has to be phantom menace. I was so that that's the story of everybody, right? Everybody everybody I know had been waiting for this film for twenty years and, and, and the and the frenzy that happened in your brain the last two years before that movie came, and when you saw the trailer, you were like, "Oh my god, I cannot wait one more year to see this film." And then it it happens, and then you're just like, "What? <laughs> you have no idea. Like, what just happened? This this was this was bad. I, I mean, it was horrible. And and you know, I I don't even blame George Lucas. I understand. Like, he he didn't even know what he did right. You know, anymore. He he was just trying to copy himself. It's not anybody's fault but it's just like it was impossible to recapture that thing right so that was really the worst that was the worst movie memory and the one of the reasons it was it was because i went and saw it again the day after because i couldn't figure out whether it was me who was wrong or whether it was bad i think i've seen that movie seven times and it's 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 equally bad you know all the times i've seen it and every time i just hope that it's good but it's yeah it's really not yeah
0: so what you what you so what you're saying is it is even even over the years as as the sequels to that movie came out after attack of the clones came out and then revenge of the sith you still you still think phantom Menace stands alone as 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 possibly like the worst movie experience
1: right i think attack of the clones was a, was 10% better revenge of the sith the sith was like 15 20% better they were still not good mm. but the phantom Menace was really horrible <laughs> and uh I I just thought, I you know I thought I thought that whole Darth Vader is a cute little boy and you know, I just couldn't figure it out. It wasn't wasn't for me. I thought I thought JJ Abrams kind of saved, kind of like did something quite amazing with the Force Awakens where you felt oh this is Star Wars again. But then that also got ruined with the. All the films. And then it's like I I'm done with Star Wars. I can't handle it emotionally anymore. So yeah.
0: Right then. A poster for the Phantom Menace from nineteen ninety-nine is going up as your worst movie memory. Next up, we're putting up a poster for the last performance that brought you to tears.
1: Right. You know, on I, I had to be honest with that one because I, I can't I couldn't remember exactly when I last cried watching a film. But but then I remembered and it was not a live action performance. It was watching Inside Out, Pixar's Inside Out, and that actually made me cry. I don't know what that was. Maybe I watched it on a place <laughs> where where you sort of usually weep a little more when you see films. But there's something about that. I was actually I was dating what would later become my wife, and the first time we saw it, we went into the theater and saw it together. And, and when it came out, and we both were crying at the end of that movie. And I think think that was that was the most sort of honest. Tears I had had in a long time because I'm quite a cynical moviegoer. That's not a lot that can make me become emotional when I watch something. But Pixar, they have some kind of devious way to get to you. You know, like they just get you almost every time. And this was the last time I distinctly remember actually having tears run down, you know, my cheeks.
0: Yeah, I, I remember the uh, when um, Bing Bong sacrifices himself in that movie.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Do you want to hear my theory about how why uh, why Pixar but also I think animated films in general this is my this is my crazy theory. I think we we react more to animated characters because when you see a live action film and you see an actor who you may be aware of their previous work, you may be aware of, you know, reading about them, you've seen an interview with them. So they come with baggage. They come with baggage. You can never completely disassociate the actor from the character, whereas an animated character only exists in that film like they they come with no baggage, so you respond in a much more honest and open way to them. That's my theory
1: I think you're right, I think that's a good theory, and also, also they spend a lot of time and money trying to make you cry, I would say with uh you know the intro sequence from up and you know
0: yes, yeah, the montage from up is uh is heartbreaking, okay. Let's put up a poster then for Inside Out as the last performance that brought you to tears. And finally, we are putting up a poster for Nikolai. What is your unpopular movie opinion?
1: I would say currently my most unpopular movie opinion is that I'm not a Nolan, Christopher Nolan fan, which is even more unpopular currently because he just made, you know, his masterpiece and it's going to win an Oscar and everything. I never was very much into Nolan. I always thought he was too cold, you know, for me. But I have to say, I really admire him. I admire his craft. I think he's made, I mean, he's made amazing films, but I always walk away going, oh, I didn't feel any, I wasn't moved. I was just dazzled, you know, and that's usually not enough for me to truly feel that a film is memorable just to be dazzled. I need to feel something, and I think that he's a little too. So that's my, not being a Nolan fan is my, most unpopular opinion card in in terms of movies. Okay. I can even feel you getting annoyed. Everybody gets annoyed when I say that. (laughs) No, no,
0: I'm just going to play, I'm going to play devil's advocate and I'm going to pick what is arguably one of uh, his most emotional movies, which is Interstellar and the relationship between Matthew McConaughey and his daughter Murph in that movie when he's watching the videos from Earth and he's in space and he's crying. I mean... I think the whole film, the whole the whole ethos of this film is, you know, love can transcend time and space. Do you do you right. still feel cold watching that?
1: No, I would also say that Interstellar is one of my favorite films of Nolan. Okay, and and also his old ones. I loved Insomnia. I loved Memento. Uh, but what Nolan does is he usually has a great concept, and he really follows through on that concept, right? If you watch Oppenheimer, what I thought was really interesting was that it felt like one big trailer, right? A 3-hour long trailer. It didn't feel like a film with a sort of like, you know, a linear story. It was more like highlights from Oppenheimer's, you know, life for 3 hours. And it was and it was still well made, which means he's a master at his craft, but I still felt a little like, "Oh, I'm not I'm not really into this. I'm just watching it because it's so well made." Uh, but yes, I would agree. Interstellar is uh, is the more emotional of the films that he made. Okay, and I love The Dark Knight because I'm a bad, you know, I'm a DC fan, so I love The Dark Knight. But for other reasons than emotional stuff, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we we can certainly agree on The Dark Knight. I mean, that's one of the few movies that I will watch purely for a performance alone. Like, I will watch it to watch Heath Ledger perform that character, right? So for your unpopular movie opinion, which which Christopher Nolan movie should we put up a poster of? Oppenheimer? Uh,
1: No, I would say, uh, let's say Inception.
0: Really? You think that's its coldest movie? But isn't that about a man?
1: No, no, I don't don't think it's its coldest movie. I just thought it was, I I was bored. Honestly, I thought you know, even the last 40 minutes was like a ski chase with guns like a James Bond movie. It just it just didn't. I just thought it was. I, I Honestly, I thought it was overrated.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, then. It's a poster for Inception. I told you it was unpopular, right? Hey, listen, on my unpopular opinion rating system, I love the fact that you've gone for that. And I love it. That's a five out of five. That's a top flight unpopular opinion. Let's go through the last set of doors right before we get to the movie you've picked there's a couple of things i want to play on the big screen and the first thing i want to play is the trailer for the film that you are most looking forward to seeing at the cinema uh,
1: currently it would be um, civil war by alex garland
0: oh yeah
1: and and i and i think it's because you know he's made some really great films and some films that are just okay but i just the the idea of a civil war is such a Simple and striking idea, and so sort of like current politics, and it, it it feels like it's just around the corner, you know. And I think that that's that's just a great idea, and I think it's policy to do that film. I've had a similar ideas to do a civil war, modern civil war film, but I but then I thought ah, it's too it's too on the nose, you know. But it seems like he probably pulled it off. When you watch the trailer, you're like, okay, that's gonna be interesting. So yeah, I can't wait to see that.
0: It looks very interesting. So it's set in a near future where the 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 western states of Texas and California are now at war with the U.S. government, and it's a group of journalists traveling across trying to stay alive. And the trailer does look great. Can I ask about your film again, though? Because The Promised Land, in a, in a similar vein, Alex Garland's film is set in a, a a not too distant future, but it's dealing with something that is very much. A hot button topic of of right now, this kind of this the fact that people are becoming more and more divided and more and more well angry in their in their separate groups and um, the promised land uh, even though it's set in the eighteenth century it does feel very prescient today this idea of how well ninety nine percent of the population back then if you weren't a noble. You were almost powerless. I mean, you literally had no rights. You could be killed, and people wouldn't bat an eyelid. And uh, Was that fascinating to you? Did you think about that when you were
1: making it? How how relevant that theme was? Absolutely, we were thinking about that a lot. I've always I've always been interested in politics and the political undertones of almost at least sixty seventy percent of the films that I've done have sort of political ideas in the minute. You no. Know, I did feel that it was similar. I think I did feel that uh, the shingle, the antagonist, was was a metaphor for the one percenters today. I mean, he's he's the millionaire who can do whatever he wants. He can maim and kill and torture, and he can do and he probably can get away with it, right? So I think you know, and the rest of us are just minions. Basically, <laughs> that's how we sometimes feel, mm-hmm. right? And I thought that was uh, that was interesting. Uh, and of course, it's it was it was worse back then because then you didn't have any rights either. But I, I think in America, it's, it's, we're a little better off in Europe, but I think in America, I think a lot of the people who have nothing, no money, no, I've lived in America for five years and it felt like that people felt very unsafe. You know, you don't have a social, you don't have a network. You don't, if you don't have insurance, you can just die from a disease. You know, it's quite a brutal country to live in, you know, and, and if you're not, if you don't have money, Forget it.
0: On the subject of Alex Garland, um, who I, I, I'm a big fan as well. Did you see his film Dread, the Judge Dread movie?
1: I did. Yeah, I I, I even know the I even know Alex a little bit because he helped me with some notes on one of my films. He's a very nice guy, and uh, I, I mean we're not friends or anything, but but we've had some and he and he directed you know one of my friends uh, Alicia Vikander in Ex Machina. Yeah. So that's wh- how we kind I got to know each well. other, and that's a great film. She's great in that. Oh,
0: that's a fantastic film. That's a fantastic film,
1: yeah. He has some really great ideas, great sci-fi ideas, right?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. All right, let's play something else on the big screen. And this is the moment, Nikolai, that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air.
1: There's so many of them, but I think the most recent that made me really go like, woo. And the whole cinema gooo was when The Force Awakens when we see Han Solo for the first time again, and he enters the Millennium Falcon. and says Chewie, we're home. Uh, I, it, it's a cliche. I know. I, I know. I'm I'm sounding a little bit like a Star Wars nut, but <laughs> but that moment was it was such a big roar in the cinema, uh, and we watched it on the opening day night. You know, so everybody there was a huge Star Wars fan, <clears throat> and it was amazing. It was just like woo. And that was that was the last sort of I probably has happened since, but I can't remember it because that was such a powerful moment. I was full on back in sort of fan mode. I was like, oh my God, they made it work. I know people are saying it's a copy of number one and a new hope. But I was so happy that I felt the same way again that I thought, now nah, we're off to the let's get, let's go. I'm ready for all these new Star Wars movies. And then the last JD was like, huh? And then the rise of Skywalker was like, what the hell? You know, I did. I try to watch some of the shows. I'm not enjoying any of the shows, and so you know, in the end, I was just, you know.
0: I don't think you're alone. I think this. I think Star Wars fatigue is setting in for a lot of people. I think there's only so many times you can get invested in it, only to be disappointed. The one, the one TV series that I, I thought was great was Andor, the Tony Gilroy series.
1: I'm I'm hearing that. I, I I I'm hearing that, and I really want to give it a chance, but I'm so afraid that I'll be disappointed again. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Well, that's my recommendation. Give it a go. Give it a go. All right. Next, next up, we're gonna play on the big screen what you consider Nikolai cinema's most shocking moment.
1: I like. I actually told you earlier. I'm not that big into movie violence and all that, mm. but. I, I once was recommended, that was, was a long time ago, the uh, Takashi Miki's uh, audition. Have you seen that? Oh, God. Audition. Yeah. Yeah, I was recommended that and I watched it alone and I went like, what the f- <laughs> is going on? And I was so shocked and freaked out and, and creeped out and disgusted. And so, so to me, that was the most shocking, you know, because I rarely see those films. I mean, I like the I've I've seen some of the old you know classic you know, I, I like the scream movies and you know I've watched a few you know I've watched the Freddy you know the Freddy films but 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 this was just a step too far for me I, I I sort of like any I will never watch a Japanese horror movie again just because that movie kind of got me so freaked out I had nightmares and was thinking about needles and horrible torture and so yeah that was the for me the most shocking I'm sure there's been a lot of shocking. since
0: oh yeah i mean definitely i mean i think um i think audition um you know that uh that started the whole kind of uh the whole hollywood fascination with uh the so-called torture porn you know i think um right eli roth famously said it inspired hostel which is a a very very graphic shocking movie
1: right exactly and i can't really watch those films i I don't they're not for me Mm.
0: yeah yeah, Um in case anyone hasn't seen audition, it is a movie about a man who auditions for a new wife, a widower, and then the final act, which is what you're talking about, Nikolai, is where it turns out she's a serial killer and she does some very horrible things with piano wire and needles.
1: Oh, now you we watch the whole thing again in my head, you know.
0: But speaking of shocking moments, there is—I uh, don't want to spoil it because I think it is a spoiler. Because I think it is shocking. In the Promised Land, um, there is uh, a moment where Frederick uh, Deschinkel. Um, Deals with uh, one of his waiting staff or his wife, his wife to be's, his potential fiance's waiting staff, her housekeeper, in a very, very, very brutal and shocking way that you do not expect to happen.
1: That scene that you're talking about, I, I love. We loved shooting that because it was sort of, sort of a closure, right? It was a final kind of thing, and I felt that it was also a very big surprise. Um, In terms of what you expect from a movie starring Matt Mikkelsen, right, you expect something else than what actually happens in the end to the antagonist. And I thought that was really interesting. But I have to then give credit to the author of the novel because that was her ending. And so, you know, it it wasn't like something I came up with. She had written that ending. And I remember reading that and going like, this is perfect. I can't wait to do this, you know, but we can't say what it is.
0: (laughs) No. No, no spoilers. People will have to go and see, and should go and see the Promised Land. Okay, let's move on. Then the next thing I'm going to play through the Dolby Atmos speakers is
1: the line or
0: piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you.
1: Right, the the I, I had to go back to almost like early early teens or early my quite early childhood. We're back in the I would say the 19 late 1980s now when I first watched Gone with the Wind. Okay. Which now is a quite unwatchable movie because it's racist and horrible. But back then I didn't know any of that, right? I just watched the film and I thought it was wonderful. And but but I just remember those last the last line which is um after you watch I think it's three and a half hours of uh Clark Gable and Vivian Lee romancing each other and he just went and she she said, What about us? Remember what? And he says, I don't give a damn. You know, was like, I was like, what? <laughs> I couldn't understand it. And I was quite young. And then I went like, this is brilliant. It's amazing. You know, what, what, a, what an e- extremely interesting, like way to end a three and a half hour romance is for the main guy to say, I don't really care about you any, anymore, you know, and then just walk away. <laughs> I thought that was, that was such a, it really, I, it meant something to me. I started thinking about films in a different way. That that's what I recall distinctly because you I fully expected it to end with you know the wedding and the romance and the end and then it didn't and that was a that was a lesson learned you know and again that, that film hasn't aged well so I wouldn't necessarily recommend it but uh, for the modern audiences but for for the times you know it was a it was a stunning innov- innovative film absolutely.
0: Absolutely. All right, then. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Echoes around the auditorium and the final thing we need to do before we get to the movie you've picked for us is play what you consider the best use of music in a film.
1: I mean, again, you know, Tarantino is always great at this, but also James Gunn, you know, all his movies have shown how great he is in creating the track lists. But usually I'm more of a uh, orchestral score guy. I mean, I'm still sort of old-fashioned that way. Uh, I remember uh, even for the Promised Land, I was I was being asked probably by some of the producers or somebody to make it a little more. Can you make it more modern? But I was like, no, I can't make it more modern. It's a it's a film set in the <laughs> 1750s, and you know, I want an orchestral score, and I just do that every time. I think I I always flirt with the idea of having electronica or something. Uh-huh. But I end up with an orchestral score every time because I just think it's so powerful and it's 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 what I love, you know. I love the good old like full orchestra string uh your session, you know. I, I and I love the experience of recording them as well. So I won't rob myself of that experience. That's one of my favorite things about making movies is when we've written the music, and I of course do not write the music, but when the composer has written the music and we go to the sound stage and there's like seventy Piece orchestra and they play for two days just for us that's incredible <laughs> that's almost one of the most incredible things about making movies
0: yeah i'm not a filmmaker myself but i i think you're right i think uh, the promised land doesn't strike me as a as a film that requires a, a more pop uh contemporary sound to it it feels it feels right The that score. would be
1: odd yeah
0: a little bit odd right then We have arrived, Nikolai. It's time to announce to this excited, packed auditorium and Quentin Tarantino himself, the movie out of all others you have picked for us to watch tonight. What are we watching, Nikolai?
1: We're watching my favourite film of all time, which is Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And it's another Spielberg movie I, I know. It's like, E.T. was my first love, but Close Encounters is my lasting love. And that film is, for me, is still the perfect film. It has so many amazing moments, and it has so many great characters, and it and it, it it sort of marries the epic, outlandish, uh, big sci-fi with the intimate, sort of family dynamic uh, character moments. And it's funny, it's dramatic, it's spectacular, but it also feels uh, real, the whole film. It feels real and it's really, and it's so beautifully shot and made, well made. I would would recommend that to anybody, you know, watch it, watch it. I mean, I know most people now have watched it probably on streaming services. If it ever comes to a theater near you, Go in and see it because that that's an amazing experience.
0: So I've I, I I've never managed to see it uh, on the big screen. I've only ever seen it at home. Um, I'm guessing you have seen it on the big screen. Talk me through um, watching that climax where the ship arrives and that that whole climax in the in the mountain.
1: It's so stunning. It's so amazing. I haven't, I, of course, I haven't watched. I, I was I was probably I didn't go and watch it when it came out the first time. I was thinking I was too young, but I've watched it on a re. Run, I think it was uh, what was it 10 years ago? I, some years ago, it came back into theaters for a very short period of time, and I'm hoping it will happen again. It seems to happen sometimes, you know, when there's uh, like 40 years later, 50 years later. Um, and so it was an amazing experience, and it didn't, it didn't age, you know, it was like it felt fresh, it felt modern. The only thing that aged, uh, was you know, the clothes that people wore, maybe the haircuts, the cars, but the. Emotional, the way the story was told, and the honestly, just the master craft that Spielberg. But he was at the height of his powers at that time, right? It was Jaws, Close Encounters. Let's not count 1941, but then <laughs> Indiana Jones. Oh my God! I mean, that was he. He could do anything, you know. And of course, he had later chapters in life where he also made some amazing masterpieces. But to me, this is the period, and you know, in his uh, work that was the most uh, sort of stunning in terms of like just coming up with ideas and, and making something visual cinema. Um so yeah that was that was an incredible thing to watch on a big screen. But I had already fallen in love with it before. I had watched it on VHS and everything, you know?
0: You don't have to count 1941 and I will say this, I haven't seen it in years, but I was obsessed with that movie as a kid. Like I uh, hindsight, you know, hindsight's very different. Like in hindsight, possibly doing a parody of the start of Jaws with the same actress to open that movie may have been the most insane idea in the world. But as a kid, I was like, this is great. It's like Jaws with a submarine.
1: No, I'm sure I also loved it when I was a kid. But it's a little all over the place, right, yeah. when you watch it. To- yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And the thing I love, uh, one of the things I love is just how good uh, Spielberg is with uh, child actors. You talked about E.T. earlier and then. Um, the, the the young actor who plays Barry, I think he's what three, three or four years old, and the performance that Steven Spielberg gets from him, like by what he's doing behind the camera, is incredible.
1: And it's and it's wonderful. Richard Driver's in that film is one. He's a, he's a he's a really bad father, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, he, he keeps swearing at his kids and like. He's and he, and, he, and he, he leaves them at the end to go to space. I mean, it's a horrible... <laughs> and Spielberg himself has said, you know, he didn't have kids when he made that movie. If he had had kids, he probably wouldn't have made that ending. <laughs> and and now suddenly, I'm suddenly watching it with different... Now that I have children, I probably also... I'm, not probably. I would not leave them just to uh, go <laughs> into a strange spaceship. But at the time, when I watched it the first 50 times... I was like, that's my dream. I want to go to space with some aliens. You know, that's what I want.
0: Well, close encounters of the third kind ends. The curtains close. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out of the movies. But before you go, it's time for this week's mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? Here we go. Nikolai, you sometimes write on films that you don't end up directing. Is there one film you've written that you also wish you had directed?
1: Oh yes, uh, that's an easy one. Oh really? See, this is a film. Yeah, this is a film that I was asked to direct and write, but then I passed on directing it. I said no, I don't. I don't really see myself directing this, but I'll write it for you. And that film was the girl with the dragon tattoo. And if I had said, if I had said yes to direct that, I would have been a millionaire. So that is definitely a movie that I that I that I certainly like regret not saying yes to. So that's an easy that's an easy answer.
0: Wow. So th- th- this is this is the, the original big screen version. Numi Rapace and Michael Nyquist.
1: Yeah, I was like, nah, can't be bothered. <laughs> I'll write it, but I
0: won't direct it uh, what was your thinking? Have you ever asked yourself why did I decide not
1: to direct it? was there something I, a- it was it was it was it wasn't a phenomenon at the time while we while I was writing the script it became a phenomenon i, I, I it wasn't when I was offered it and I was thinking, it's a serial killer crime movie set in Sweden you know that's not really my thing but I mean writing it was fun it was fun to write it and 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 it was you know. I'm still proud. I'm proud of that script. Yeah, it's a great script. I should have probably, I should have probably said yes to direct that.
0: <laughs> right, Nikolai. That is it. Your taxi has arrived
1: to ferry you back to
0: reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect trip to the movies. You are going with Quentin Tarantino at seven p.m. You are sitting in the middle of row six, and you are having as much candy as you can eat and some sushi. We leave the foyer and head down the corridor, putting up a poster for your fondest movie memory, which was the first time you saw E.T. Your worst movie memory is watching The Phantom Menace. The last performance that brought you to tears was the characters from 2015's Inside Out and your 5 out of 5 rated unpopular movie opinion is that you are not a big Christopher Nolan fan. His movies leave you cold. Right, we enter the auditorium. You are playing the trailer for Alex Garland's upcoming Civil War. We are then playing the moment that makes you pump your fist in the air. Chewy, we're home. From The Force Awakens, cinema's most shocking moment was from Takeshi Mike's audition and the line of dialogue that most affected you. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. The best use of music in a movie is the work of either James Gunn or Quentin Tarantino's Needle Drops. Before we watch your favourite movie of all time, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Nikolai That was your perfect trip to the movies. All that's left to do is ask you, have you had a good time?
1: I've had a wonderful time. Thank you.
0: Thank you for taking us on a trip to the movies. Congratulations again on The Promised Land. A wonderful film.
1: Thank you so much, Alex.
0: And as Nikolai's cab carries him out of this dimension, away from our virtual cinema, back to reality, we must all leave his movie paradise as well. But just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget, you can find the full video for today's Nikolai Arcel and indeed for every guest over on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there, and as I said at the start, if you like what you see, please help us grow the pod by hitting that subscribe button. And that really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies.